And today's guest is Dave Robinson. Dave is a chartered financial planner for Centurion Financial Planning, and it is IFA or the highway with Dave. And we talk about the importance of IFA and why there needs to be an IFA Academy. Um, we dig deep into Dave Robinson's past, how he got into the financial planning. He actually started out in accountancy and moved across into financial planning. He digs deep and shares deep around his business, his charging structure and why he charges that and the plans and the changes that he's looking to make and evolve as a business. We talk about trainees, how they fit within his company, how he supports them. Um, we also talk about his eldest son who has a genetic disorder and that's given him a personal interest in financial planning for dependents with special needs. Um, and he gets heavily involved in that. But he also has lots of other specialist areas, things like investment management for later life, personal injury, working with attorneys, deputies and trustees and beneficiaries of those that have gone through the courts, maybe through medical negligence. It's a very deep dive into Dave Robinson's career. And I find it super interesting to talk to Dave. He's hugely passionate about the profession and the state it's in now and where he thinks it should go. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Financial Planner Life podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Sam. I'm very well and I'm pleased to be here. Amazing. I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for so long because you you comment a lot on my posts and you've always got a lot to say. And it always sounds really interesting. You're very passionate about financial planning. You're passionate about the careers within financial planning. You're, you're passionate about how the, the profession is promoted. And you're also passionate about how it's growing and the way it grows, and the way these newbies are coming into the profession, and what style and approach are they taking towards becoming a financial advisor or financial planner, and what route distribution channels they go down to do this, and how they actually deliver the advice to the clients. And you're a very client-centric individual. like yeah. That comes across really, really clearly. And you're somebody as well that's kind of coming to the end of your career, aren't you? <laughs> very kind of you to point that out, Sam. But yes, uh, you can you can probably tell looking at me. I am f- near closer towards the end of my career than the start of it. Let's put it that way. It but wasn't yes. an ob- yeah. It wasn't an observation. <laughs> it was more what you told me on the telephone. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely right, Sam. Yes, yes. fantastic. And yeah. and I think sometimes you know what, Dave. I think sometimes the profession likes to bash. They like to bash a little bit of the the older boys or the mm. older girls that work within the profession. You know, they, I hear dinosaur <clears throat> being banded around and all that kind of stuff. And I think to myself sometimes that's a bit unjust and a bit unfair because individuals like you have been around within financial planning for years. You've seen it change dramatically. Um, and also people like yourself and what I've learned from you, your values, your intrinsic values about how you run your business, how you deliver advice to clients. Sounds like it hasn't changed from the very beginning anyway. And the profession, if anything, no. is catching up with you. I would like to hope so. Yeah, I guess. Yes. And I, I guess one of the crucial things, Tom, is that this was my second career. You know, I, I got into regulated financial advice after probably about a, a nine, 10 year career in accountancy. So my first qualification was a couple of chartered accountancy qualifications. And I think very simply that has set the tone for my financial advice career, really. Um, you know, I, I came at it from a professional background. Um, that that was probably the crucial difference, really, and that 
as you say, that's just flowed through my 40-odd year career. Um, so 40 years ago, you were working as an accountant and you decided that you wanted to move into financial planning, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And, and why? Yeah. Um, it's a good question. Um, I, I suppose um, I got into accountancy because I wanted to build what I would call was a professional career, which broadly speaking was advising people about a technical subject that I was quite interested in. But what I found with accountancy was very often I was meeting the same people and talking about the same sort of things, the same issues, the same problems, the same potential solutions, really on a very routine, very regular basis. And I also found that, you know, all accountants will tell you they're proactive individuals and probably 30 or 40 years down the line, they are a lot more proactive than we used to be. But I just felt there was something a little bit better out there. Now, I was in general practice. I was dealing with a lot of small, medium-sized enterprises and their owners. The archetypal example that people probably will understand is that every year we'd be looking at cash flow. We'd realize we had surplus cash flow. We'd be looking at the company tax position. We will be looking at the cash in the bank. You know, we'd be saying, right, how do we extract some of this money tax efficiently? What we probably should do is a pension contribution. So in those days, you know, there, there was no independent financial advice profession, but many clients had their own sort of financial advisor, to use it in a loose sense. All clients would say to me, okay, well, how do we go about doing that? And I'd say, well, I can't give that bit of advice. What we've got to do is go and find someone who can talk to you about pensions. And so we did. Um, and one way or another, I, I just sort of thought, okay, these people are walking in after I've probably done a year's worth of work and charged, you know, uh, quite a, a reasonable fee for it, etc. These guys are just walking in with an application form for a pension contribution and walking out again about half an hour later with a whacking great commission payment in their pocket. Mm. Um, and I thought, hmm, hey, that looks a bit like a commercial opportunity. <laughs> but the more I looked at it, the more I thought, do you know what? Um, I probably, after having done a bit of digging, know more about these pension products than a lot of the people who are actually making the recommendations. And I just began to think, I, you know, I just think there's a better way to give financial advice. Now, coincidentally, this was all sort of aligned around the time of the first Financial Services Act. I know people looking at me won't believe I was around in 1986, but I was. Um, yeah. <laughs> and for the first time ever, regulation began to happen. Now, one of the crucial reasons I think regulation began to happen was because at the market at that time, the product distribution channel on the market really was dominated by about 10 very large sales forces, most of them operated by big insurance companies. Um, and for, uh, what that meant was the product distribution, the product distributors did not come under, under any great sort of pressure to develop particularly good products or to control charges and all this kind of thing. 
And what the first Financial Services Act did in part was it, it introduced the concept of independent financial advice. So what that really meant was separate out the advice process from the product manufacturer. And one of the philosophical reasons for it, I think, was to um, put a sort of tranche of advisors in a position where they could look at the reasonability of the, all these products one way or another, compare one against the other, and it imposed on them a duty to select the best product, to put it very simply. Now, one of the crucial things that that should do, taken to its logical conclusion, is it should put pressure on the product manufacturers to manufacture better and more cost-effective products. And I saw that independent financial advice opportunity as a really good step forward. I thought that is, you know, that's a step towards a profession. I didn't want to be a product salesman. I was philosophically opposed to it because I came from a professional background. I wanted to give advice and I wanted to charge a fee for it. Um, and the... the that independent profession took a little while to evolve. It certainly wasn't possible to join it at that stage without having a background um, in sales. It really wasn't. There was no way in. So what I really did was I, I, I sort of started by trying to go direct into IFA work, and I put it to the partners in the firm, here's an opportunity I've been spending two or three years trying to integrate well, financial advice with all the accountancy and tax advice I've been giving. Clients like it. It's a real opportunity for the firm. Maybe what I should do is just go off and train again and we can build an IFA practice. And the partners were just, frankly, scared to death by the concept. Oh, no, it's a bit scary. It's all regulated. It's going to be really tricky. What's really interesting is that firm that I trained in was then absorbed by Mazars, which is <laughs> probably the first and foremost financial planning business in any major chartered accountant. So ultimately, it did happen in that firm, mm. but it wasn't going to happen for me. So I had to go and find a route into financial advice. And I, I was, I suppose, at that stage, late 20s, um, and uh, it was a bit of a jump into the unknown, but I thought, well, it's fine. I've got an accountancy, well, two accountancy qualifications to fall back on if I need to. Let's just go and give it a go. Um, and so I started to look around, and what became quite apparent to me was that there were plenty of sales forces out there that were quite happy to train me, particularly with my accountancy qualification. Um the routine seemed to be that I had to write out a list of people's names and telephone numbers, virtually everybody I knew. I would then go to an academy in a loose sense. They would teach me about a very basic product, and let's call it very simply term assurance. Mm. My job then would be to go and sell as much of that product to as many of those people on that list as I could. And if I sold enough, they would then teach me about a better product, a more complicated one. Um, my role would then be to go back to those people and say, right, okay, 
I've now come across a better product. Um, that one that I've just sold you probably isn't quite as good as it could have been. What we need to talk about now is this one. Now, I immediately thought, that's just rubbish. That's product distribution. That's not what I'm into. Um, but I managed to find a sort of halfway house through teacher's assurance. So I moved from Yorkshire to Bournemouth, literally, to go and train in financial advice. The reason why I went to teacher's assurance was it was very good technical training. Um, and yes, it was it was commission driven product sales, but there was a sort of safety net underneath it. But it really was good quality technical training and it wasn't aggressive sales. The, the company was owned by the NUT. Um, you know, it, it was a very much more civilized way in than some of the other major sales forces. So I did that quite happily and sort of found my feet. But then, as soon as I could, I went independent. And I did that through an organization called Frizzell down in Bournemouth, which was very well known. Again, a lot of public sector clients. But the crucial difference was it was an independent financial advisor and there was no product manufacture going on. So I then sort of moved across to IFA. And then really what I started doing, I suppose, was mixing and matching a business, giving some accountancy advice, giving some tax advice. Most of the clients were sort of um, small businesses, et cetera, et cetera. I was putting the regulated advice through an independent financial advisor. I've got to know in pool down in Dorset. All went quite happily um, for a period of probably five or six years. Um, then my career evolved, and, and the, the, the reason why that evolved was my first child was born, and my first child was born with something very similar to Down syndrome. Right. Um, now, for various reasons, um, that really meant that my wife wanted to get back up towards Bristol, towards sort of family support, et cetera, et cetera. I had no contacts whatsoever in, in Bristol, but I knew it wasn't going to be feasible to retain the client base down in Dorset. So I, I moved that into the financial advisor I'd been working with and then thought, well, where do I go from here? Now, one big advantage of having an accountancy or two chartered accountancy qualifications was I was ready-made for a career back in accountancy practice. And at this stage, accountants were beginning to cotton on to the value of giving regulated financial advice in-house. So I went to a firm in Bath. Um, I joined the financial advice business. Um, I was um, giving independent financial advice, et cetera, et cetera. That all went very well. Probably wasn't the the best firm I could have joined, but it was a local one. I was all getting on very well. But then what happened, which was really quite interesting, another bigger regional practice had decided that it should get into financial advice too. And it had a, amongst its client base a small IFA practice comprising two partners, one of whom wanted to retire. Now, coincidentally, that older partner went to his accountants and said, I need to sell my, or I want to exit my business. How do I go about it? Can you help me sort of go and find someone to buy it, et cetera, et cetera? And the accountants looked at it and said, well, we want to get into financial advice. Um, why don't we buy it from you? Mm. Um, and so he said, well, great. Um, so they bought this firm. And then they thought, 
hmm, what have we bought and how does it work and what's it do and how do we integrate it into our accountancy practice? Unfortunately, by then, I'd been knocking around in, in Bath and Bristol for about 18 months, couple of years, and they sort of, I knew a couple of the partners. And it was, oh, well, Dave's over there. Dave's a chartered accountant. He's worked on our side of the fence. He's certainly worked on an independent financial advisor side of the fence. Let's get him in. So I had a quite an attractive offer to go and join them. And I spent a couple of years there integrating that business into the accountancy profession. And I learned an awful lot doing it, an awful lot. I won't go into the details. Not everything I learned was good, but um, what that then did, one way or another, was it gave me the confidence to start my own firm um, and a very small amount of capital that I had behind me at that stage. And so I knew I was technically competent. I think I had the energy, the drive to do it. Um, I had sufficient capital to do it. It was a lot easier in those days. It was mm. basically ten thousand pounds in the bank, and and the FCA would um, would, would approve you. Um, so a colleague and I set up an independent practice that went very well. Um, we ran that for quite a period of time. But then I got to the point where I thought this is getting more difficult to run now. Um, regulation was increasing. Independent financial advice had not turned out to be all sunshine and roses. Um, the, a number of his scandals had erupted. The regulator was beginning to come down a lot harder um, small firms were becoming increasingly expensive to run, et cetera, et cetera. And um, what basically I thought then was we've got to merge this into a bigger practice. Uh, I had two partners at the time. I had to bring them in on a, a, a share uh, ownership basis because I just didn't have enough capital or cash in the firm to pay them decent salaries. We had a discussion about it. We we found an organisation that we wanted to sell to. We did sell. It was a, an investment manager. What I very quickly found, I'd be, we'd been a bit naive about this, but we were very quickly required to place all the clients into that investment manager's proposition. It was right for some. It certainly wasn't right for others. And I just felt we let the clients down by doing it. Um, I hadn't done it for the money. I definitely hadn't done it for the money. I'd done it because I wanted to solve this problem of being a small firm, and I wanted to focus more on client work and running a business. The end result of that was we bought the client base back. Um, And uh, probably cost me a little bit of money to do that, but we got control again. Uh, And then what happened was the three of us decided to sort of go our separate ways. I was still very keen to get into something that was bigger. The other two were less keen. They believed that we had a successful small business. Um, So we just decided quite amicably to go our separate ways. By that stage, I'd been building some joint ventures through various small accountancy firms, and I'd come to the attention of one of the major regional accountancy practices they offered me a role to go in there as a director of the financial planning business and begin to transition it. We'd been running, let's call it a financial planning firm, 
mm. this accountancy practice had a much more traditional, what I'd call IFA business, very much more transactional, very commission-driven, all, all this kind of thing. And the partners had sort of seen what I'd do, been doing and how it was a bit different and asked me to go in and help transition it. So I did. Um, and I spent 10 very happy years there. And I suppose having got the financial planning business or certainly large parts of it the way I wanted, I began to refocus on where I wanted to go with my client work. Now, I have a child who's got very severe learning difficulties who will always be dependent for life. Very quickly, I you know, I know nothing at all about biology. This is a genetic disorder. There is nothing at all to be done about it. But what I very quickly realized was that um, he was going to be a dependent for life. I had to put in place some financial planning. And very early on, I realized I needed to understand trusts in order to do that for all sorts of reasons. So I began to build a sort of pro bono business, if you like. Once I'd worked out what I needed to do for myself, I was very keen to spread it around other families uh, of, of people with special needs, all done on a pro bono basis. But I began to find that extremely worthwhile. At that stage then, my parents and parents-in-law also began to develop all sorts of serious issues, um, health issues in later life. You you sort of learn from experience, don't you? But I very quickly realised that actually that was a real minefield as well. And having found my way through it a couple of times, I realised other people need help through this minefield because of the work I've been doing with special needs and I was doing pro bono sort of advice or, or helping people through various national charities. I've come into contact with a lot of personal injury work. Um, I was doing, I qualified as a trust practitioner by that stage. I was doing a lot of trust work. A, a lot of lawyers were referring to me because they realized I was a chartered accountant. There was something a bit different about me. I had personal experience of special needs, then of later life, all this kind of stuff. And very quickly, what I sort of realized was what I found most rewarding about financial advice was not dealing with ultra high net worth individuals. I've done my fair share of that. But what I found really rewarding was dealing with people who the FCA now has worked out are vulnerable, for want of a better word. People who are talking about wealth, whatever wealth is, at the same time as they're probably suffering trauma, and very often at the same time when they've got lack of experience. So wealth can be whatever wealth is. And, you know, I'm really quite proud of the fact that Centurion's client base, we probably got a couple of clients in there where we're looking after 25,000. That goes right through to some really very substantial personal injury awards. Mm. So wealth is not the, not the driving factor. But what an awful lot of the clients have is trauma, either through illness or through a death of a loved one or through um, uh, certainly a catastrophic injury or the development of a genetic disorder or whatever it may be. Um, and uh, very often they've also got lack of experience. They know that they've got to take advice um, 
but they haven't got any experience which will help them start off down that track. Now, these people, as the FCA have realised, are very, very vulnerable to poor advice. Um, and certainly, if I go back to my Bournemouth days, I uh, came across a practice that literally used to prey on elderly widows. Did they? Yeah, absolutely preyed on them. They, they, and they were known for it. Ultimately, they were put out of business by the regulator. But there was all sorts of uh, backhanders going to undertakers. There were people employed to look through obituary notices, trace those back through the electoral roll, all that kind of stuff. But I suppose what I found was this was really quite rewarding. Um, and uh, I, that's where I decided to spend the rest of my career. Now, uh, what I'd also realised was the only way that I was really able to get control of the advice that was given and the way it was given and the fees that were charged for giving it was to do it myself and set up the firm with like-minded people. I had a couple of false starts with organisations that just I didn't see eye to eye with, just to put it very simply. And the end result was that Stuart Doughty, who was my original partner in Centurion and I, we met each other through a common interest in giving advice to personal injury claimants. Um, we realised that we just hit it off straight away. We were very like-minded um, in terms of what we wanted to achieve, which was really build this specialist financial planning firm um, and as it turns out, you know, it's been really quite attractive to other people who get this idea of specialising. It's also gone well beyond specialising because what we have found is it just the way we do things is very attractive to people who are not in any way vulnerable. They just realise that we're very professional about the way we look after people, the way we give advice, and also because we've got a very particular fees charging structure, we're actually really quite cost effective when it comes to the clients paying for it. So um, and I suppose what we've evolved, we've, we we put Centurion together in, I think, July 2016, so we've been going for six years. We, we've now built it to a firm of 11 advisors. The 12th one joins us next month. Mm. Um, of those 12, uh, eight are chartered possibly nine no eight um we have seven solar accredited individuals which is more than any independent firm in the country we have three trust and estate practitioners we've got our first resolution accredited chartered financial planners we're at the point where about 80 percent of the work is referred by the legal profession and we are um I hope recognised, well, we are recognised by the legal profession as being a firm. Um, and between us, we are a very good general practice firm. But uh, we are a firm that collaborate. The, the, the reason I draw that distinction, what I do believe is that most financial advice firms really are loose collections of individuals. Um it's partly mentality, it's partly driven by remuneration structure, but very often they're loose collections of individuals who sort of come together under a compliance banner 
but everyone is fighting their own corner when it comes to fees. And very often people are very protective of a client relationship. It's my client. Well, we don't have anything like that. It's a client of the firm. And very often we'll have two or three of us working on that client from time to time. Uh, I think it's very good to give clients two points of contact just in case one is hit by a bus. You know, we're dealing with an awful lot of people who've had an awful lot of really horrible accidents. That could happen to any of us. So, um, and, and what we've created is a real culture where people are very happy to share their knowledge and experience. I've had two conversations with two of the advisors today about two different quite interesting technical situations. Um, they know they can ring me up if they think, you know, there are certain areas they would not talk to me about. And one of those is technical pensions advice. You know, I am probably the least qualified advisor in the country to talk to you about a SAS. Uh, I have no idea really what a SAS is. Well, I know loosely what it is, but I've got no idea how it works. Um, I've got four or five people in the firm who could bore you rigid for hours about the technical aspects of SASs. You know, so we are a firm. We collaborate together. And that, I think, is something that everybody who joins us finds both really very rewarding, but sadly, very, very surprising. They've never seen it before. I don't think we're the only firm that does it. There are others, and I do know of other examples. But it's really bizarre how that's strange. Dave? Can I stop you there and just ask you some questions about that? Yeah, sure. So that's that does sound very it does sound very unique. And I can what you said there about uh, firms often are a collection of individuals as opposed to like a team. Mm. From a remuneration perspective, and I think people would be interested to hear this who run their own businesses. How does that work? Is everybody on like an equal salary? Is there a bonus structure? Do you pay bonuses? How do you well, remunerate people, and how are they? How do they become part of the, the 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 values and the growth of that business from a financial perspective, and also from an intrinsically intrinsically um, rewarding perspective when it comes to say income? I'm quite interested in that side. In in that side, and, and it, it, that is evolving. Is is what I would honestly say, Sam. It, it, today, I can honestly tell you there is no bonus structure. Hmm. Okay, that is going to a change from next year, from the first of January. Right, and I'll, I'll explain why it's going to change. Um, but historically, I've always been averse to bonus structures because i think they can produce undesirable results as well i.e most bonus structures are based on how much have you generated in terms of income for the firm that i think is 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 fundamentally wrong um but what we what what we do is we pay people we believe competitively and reasonably and it's all done on base salary and stuart and i took the view we want to build a firm you know i can honestly tell you i am not the highest paid person in my firm i'm not um yes i benefit from a slightly advantageous tax treatment in the in the 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 money i extract from the firm but um i think my starting point is uh, it's a bit bizarre for a financial advisor to say this but i am not motivated by money i am honestly not motivated by money um what we make sure of is that everybody has a good standard of living. And um, 
obviously we're paying competitively because if we weren't, we wouldn't have any employees. But one of the other things we wanted to do was was really open up the equity ownership of this firm. Um, and Stuart and I now both own about 29% each, I think it is. We've taken ourselves down to that level without extracting a penny from the firm. And the way we've done it is that we offered equity to two of our early joiners who we felt were quite important. One is a very well-qualified advisor who's now running our operation down in Devon. The other is not an authorised advisor. His background is operations, IT and that kind of thing. So we felt quite simply that these are two people that we really do, we, we think they're important to the the development of the firm at that stage so we brought them into equity and we did it we had to do it in such a way that we didn't give them a major tax problem they bought in but they bought in at a reasonable price and i think what we can show is that we probably hopefully multiplied their initial investment by about five times in the course of probably three years something like that um we are talking to three other employees about it. What I'm really not interested too much in is people who just want to earn a lot of money. Um, I want them to be on board with this philosophy of building a firm and realising that actually there is a choice between sort of financial jam today and financial jam tomorrow. We know our firm is attractive. We've had a, quite a lot of offers in a loose sense, you know, they, these things have never gone to formal offers because we've never been interested. But we know that there are lots of people out there who would like to acquire us. That's not going to happen while I'm around. And what I'm hoping is that I'm instilling in people the idea that um, they can be a decision maker in this firm. They can earn a reasonable living. They can build a capital value. Um, and that's what we're doing. Uh, you know, accountants and solicitors have been enabling partners to come and go for hundreds of years. What I want to do is create a financial planning firm that will do exactly the same. And when I do retire, my shares are going to be sold back to the firm. There's absolutely no shadow of a doubt about it. Um, but yes, bonus structure. We are introducing one because um, let's say we're, we're, we're in a transition phase here. Um, We've grown quite rapidly. 12 advisors have come together over the course of the last six years. They come from various different backgrounds. Um, some have been independent financial advisors. Some have been what I would really call proper financial planners. Some have come from the big vertically integrated distribution channels. Anyway, we've come together from a variety of backgrounds. Um, the really good thing about this is we've come together philosophically, but operationally, we've got clients who were paying fees in different ways, all this kind of stuff. What we have agreed and what we agreed some time ago is that all new fees are going to be charged on a very explicit fixed fee basis. Um, the fees are calculated by reference to the time required to do the job. Fundamentally, underneath it all, I am... Uh, uh, very much of the view that service should be tailored to the client and fees should be tailored to service. So every client is treated as an individual. There is no way I'm going to get involved in this gold, silver and bronze stuff. 
are not going to fit a client into a service. We are going to fit the service to the client. So um, over the course of the last couple of years, we've probably shot ourselves in the foot financially as people have struggled with the concept of calculating fees properly. Um, and, you know, there, there's no sort of um, uh, ill intent here at all, but the, the consumer duty regime doesn't hold any great fear for me at all. But what it does do is it means we've got to bring this together and homogenise it and standardise it. So um, what we've basically said is that everybody now... Um, that all of the back office staff are absolutely on fixed salaries, and and what I'm hoping is that we have a pot we can distribute amongst them um, at the end of the year if the profits are there. Um, but with the advisors, I have now given them a set of ten different objectives that we are looking for them to achieve over the course of the next year. These are not one of them is is produce a, a new fee income. Um, to hit expectation on that. Um, but we've got nine other different objectives. Now, those are aligned to the future of the business. And the reason why I'm bringing in a bonus is partly because um, we, 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 I think, need to really focus their mind on achieving these nine or ten different objectives. So we've got in there, for example, one of them is time recording. Um, I want and, and fee quoting. I want to see the mechanics of that being done properly. What time um, associated to fees associated to the time? To the time involved. Yeah. Um, and you know that's one of the objectives. Um, I've got various others. You've got to have a completely clean sort of um, complaint history for the year. They've got to have a completely clean uh file check yeah. our external compliance consultant all this kind of stuff um uh they've got to have positive feedback from clients on the the samples that we take um you know so th there's a range of different things but what i'm trying to do here is focus the advisor's mind because i've got a very clear strategy in my head and i think stuart and our other two executive directors have got a very clear idea I think I need to encourage the wider advisor population to also get those ten different objectives in their head. So yeah, we you know we're operating a bonus system. I'm slightly in two minds about it. I've never been um, a massive fan. Um, I've never had one myself. Um, but it's the bonus is not associated to the level of business you write. The bonus is associated to the quality of the service you provide and the yeah. quality of of delivery. Yeah, yeah, and and more importantly, it's it's aligned to these ten different criteria that I really want the advisors to focus on. Like values, because exactly because that is intrinsically important to the future of the firm. Now, I like that. That's cool. You know, and I can you know. I'm, <laughs> I can tell you that at the moment we are working at 56% efficiency. I know that because I'm a very anal accountant. But broadly speaking, what that means in a very simple way is we are recovering 56% of our chargeable time potential. Right. My aim is to recover much closer to 100%. My, my target is 85%. Is that if because? That, is that sorry? Is that because you are? too cheap.
it's Charlie. I'm sorry to interrupt you mid-episode, but I had an idea and if you've been thinking about it, I might just have the answer. If you've been sat here thinking, I need more support in my career, I don't have access to everything I need to put me on this career trajectory all these guests on the podcast have, I know where you need to go and you need to click the link in the description which will take you to the Financial Planner Life Academy. This is the first fully independent academy. You'll have access to all the resources you need for all of your qualifications, plus soft skills training, live Q&As with experts and a load of career advice in there as well. I won't keep you any longer so you can get back to the episode but click that link in the description if I've made you curious. No, it's not because it is, well, partly, Sam, it it possibly is. You know, one of the really interesting things has been how financial advisors have transitioned, particularly those that have have come in from outside, um, have transitioned to our way of thinking on time recording and fee quoting. Now, this has been something that I've deliberately let evolve because I don't. I, I want advisors to find their own way with it. I know it's going to shoot us in the foot financially. I am expecting, and profit has gone down before I expect it to go up again. But um, I think where we are now, um, the, the advisors are undercooking the fees because what i've asked them to do is calculate with a new fee for example how much of whose time is going to be involved in bringing that client to implementation stage i'm not surprised everybody thinks it takes less time than it actually does um and that process has now evolved. We developed the fee calculating sort of um, capability as we've gone. Um, I'm expecting that average new fee to go up next year um, because I expect people are now becoming more confident and because they're better informed as to the time it takes to actually achieve things. So, um, but in terms of value for clients, absolutely. Uh, I am 100% sure this provides real value for money in terms of what the FCA is expecting from consumer duty. We are providing too much value at the moment because people are not properly calculating how much time it takes, but that will evolve. Um, so you'll see. In, term, in, yeah. in terms of ongoing fees, we we are we are there. We've got a much better understanding of what's involved and who's having to spend the time on a on an annual review. You know, th- we're coming at this from various different angles as well. Because one of the big reasons why we're sort of inefficient is that because we've got twelve advisors who've come together, we've had a myriad of platforms. For example, well, we're building our own now. Um, and we are implementing our own on hopefully the 1st of January. It's all in this sort of final stage of development phase, but let's say the deadline is is expected to be the 1st of January. That will both make us efficient um, because we're coming onto a single platform. What it will also do is it will add probably in the fullness of time about quarter of a million pounds to our bottom line, but crucially, what it will also do is drop the charges that clients are paying. 
Now, you know, we can add a quarter of a million pounds to our bottom line whilst also dropping clients' charges. What's not to like? Um, yeah, you, feel, you, you are driven by value, aren't you? There's a value, yeah. you know, it's a client value. Now, this does this stem from the vulnerable clients that you first, you know, you've got your, you've got your, your there's an element of your business, which is like a passion project that you're aligned to, which is doing good for people who are in vulnerable situations, whether or not they're clinically negligent, personal injury, mm. or long-term health problems, whatever that vulnerable client actually is. So there is that element of your business, which focuses on that. And there's a cost associated to helping those people. Why would you charge them too much when they're at a vulnerable position in their life anyway? Yeah. Are, are you then keep, so the charging for those types of clients, it sounds to me that you kept them quite low. Do you then match the charging for those types of clients to say some, you know, your, your, per, your typical client who's not perhaps vulnerable they still get the level of service that a vulnerable person does, which I think that's admirable. You know, you treat every client exactly the same. But do you do you make it more affordable for the vulnerable client? No, so it's exactly Not, the same cost. No, no. I mean, what what we're aiming to do is treat every client exactly same. the same from a fee perspective. And what we're aiming to do is make sure that every client pays for the amount of time involved in dealing with their matter. Just time okay. based, yeah. What, what, but. One thing I would say is that that turns out to be absolutely excellent value for money for some of the large, particularly the large value personal injury claims that we deal with. Yeah. Because if you went somewhere else to deal with a £5 million personal injury claim and maybe they are charging a 1% implementation fee or whatever it may be, we will be massively under that, massively under that, because what we're doing is we're saying how much of whose time does it take to put that thing together, and that's what we're going to charge for. My point, Sam, is that I know if we recovered every chargeable hour that we could in our firm, broadly, we would double our turnover. Right, okay. Okay, because we are working at 56% recovery. All I want to do is charge every client for the hours involved in doing the job for them. They will get a very fair fee from that. Particularly, they will get a remarkably low fee compared to some if they're talking about investing large sums of money. But as a firm, we are just getting paid for the number of chargeable hours that we have in a year. Now, how do you, when it comes to actually positioning that with the clients themselves, do you do you come up against barriers to that? Yeah, it's interesting. You see, I I I don't particularly, but then I was doing that forty years ago as an accountant. You know, um, I, I had a very brief spell, as I said, for about eighteen months as a commission based financial advisor, um, and what I found was I was proactively telling clients how much commission I was going to get paid. I was actually going out of my way to explain to clients, I'm going to get paid for doing this. It's just you're not going to pay me. I'm going to get paid a commission. Now, what what I found is clients were hugely surprised. I was the first financial advisor they ever met who told them that they were actually paying for this. Um, You know, that's the fundamental 
difference, if you like. I have never had a problem saying to a client, I'm a professional person providing a professional service and technical advice. I am going to charge you a fee for that. This is what my fee is going to be. Um, yeah, I certainly would say that some clients have said, oh, that's a bit high or whatever it may be. Um, but certainly, I've, I've always been instructed by the vast majority of people I've met. You know, this is it's a confidence thing. It's a comfort thing. Uh, certainly, we have had advisors in the firm who haven't found it as easy as that because it's a fundamental change from where they've been. <laughs> But what was really interesting, one of the really interesting things that came out of the advisor meeting um, that we did recently, is one, one of the advisors who comes from a large vertically integrated distribution channel, recent joiner, but it's very surprised about how we calculate those fees. And it's kind of, is that all the fee is? Well, and, and certainly a number of advisors have said that. Well, I've gone through the fee calculation. It said the fee should be this. That seems a bit low. And I said, well, just go back and check your figures. Have, have you got your, your time right? Because if, if your time's right, that's what the fee is. I'm not going to overcharge the client. Um, I just want them to pay for the time it, it takes. So, and then what I say to the advisors is, well, you, you've just told me you think that fee's low. So, so why should your client think otherwise? You know, mm. <laughs> um, It's a confidence thing. It's a mindset thing. But as I say, the big advantage I got was I trained for nine years as an accountant. I didn't have any other way of earning fees other than to say, this is what I'm going to do for you and this is what it's going to cost. Interesting, Dave, right? Because there's similarities there to the recruitment profession. The recruitment profession is a profession, say profession, recruitment industry, right? You you charge a contingent you charge based either on a contingency fee or like on a retainer and if i was to actually someone if i turn around to someone and say right for me to make a placement into your firm we'll charge you seven thousand pounds plus vat for a financial advisor we don't tell you how long it takes to do the job it's just we mm. do it that way because we average it out over the mm. over the year of all of our clients and all the time that we spend on things where we don't get paid right so it might be that I find someone straight away, put it across to you, and it's taken me 10 minutes that you hire that person, and I mm. charge you £7,000, right? Yeah. And and that feeling, like, we don't, as a, we don't as an industry ask for, like, for hourly, you know, to say, look, this is how much it's going to cost you for the recruitment. I'm going to break it down. So this part is going to cost this much. This part is going to cost this much. Because nobody seems to, well, the, the perception is that nobody wants to pay that way. But actually, mm. when you start asking for business that way and explaining the work that goes into it, people are actually quite responsive to being paid, like for paying for like retained mm. business mm. and structuring it and breaking it down, where if at one point it doesn't actually end up going anywhere, then they've only paid part of a fee, but they are happy knowing that the energy yeah. and efforts have been put in to actually do it. And you've got lots of these mm. people that are training recruiters to say, look, you know, lots of other places ask for money up front. Why don't you? And it's a, it is a mindset thing, isn't it, when you sit down with somebody and ask? It, it, it absolutely is. And, you know, the crucial yeah, isn't point, Sam, is people will only pay a fee quite right. It's like me. You know, if I go out and buy a washing machine, mm. do I think that washing machine is worth the price that's being asked for it? And if I go and walk into a washing machine shop, I will see 
20 different models with 20 different prices attached to it. What I'm going to settle on is the one that provides what I want at a price I think is reasonable value. Um, very similar, really. And, mm. and you know, it, it's interesting. It's, it's my mindset because, as I say, I was taught that in, a, in an accountancy profession. There are a number of other financial planners out there who get it. There are a number of other financial planners I know whose first career was law or accountancy. They yeah. obviously get it. Um, but someone who's come from a product distribution um, channel will obviously, it's an alien concept. Well, the FCA has picked up on it. The FCA is saying we've got to provide value for money. Well, what better way to do it than actually charge people for the time and effort? And, and what you do is... I put something up on LinkedIn about it the other day. You know, you start from the other way around. Well, you know, I know what resource I've got in my firm. I know what the costs involved in running my firm are. Okay, there's a, a couple of bits I can't control. For example, the FCA levy and the cost of PI insurance are the two standouts on that. I'm in the lap of the gods almost. But broadly, I know what it costs to run the firm. Um. And uh, I know what I think a reasonable profit level is. And what I'm targeting is an operating profit of 30%, because what I believe is that should strike an appropriate balance between the three stakeholders. And the three stakeholders are the people who own the firm and the clients who pay the fees and the team that works within the firm. Those are the three stakeholders to me. And what I want to do is strike an equal balance because I think if any of if any one stakeholder is lording it over the others, there's going to be a problem. And it doesn't matter which one. But, you know, we've got to keep that balance. So 30% to me is reasonable. Now, I know how many chargeable hours I've got in our, in our team. You know, I know how many weeks... A year they work, I know how many hours a week broadly we can charge for. We've got things like CPD to take into account, marketing, you know, the non-chargeable stuff. Um, but broadly, if I charge sensible hourly rates, then, uh, and I charge a chartered financial planner out, including myself, at 250 quid an hour, uh, that's reasonable. That's in aligned broadly to a an accountant or a solicitor in this part of the world with a reasonable level of experience, you know, all that sort of stuff. We charge a, a qualified member of support team out at 150 and we charge admin out at 75. I put all those figures into a melting pot and I can tell you we're recovering 56% of our chargeable time at the moment. And the strategy and the reason for those 10 bonus criteria are that should bring us more towards the 85% recovery rate one, one way or another. Once I get there, we'll have a much more profitable firm and all of the clients will be paying a fair and reasonable fee. And I'm very upfront about this. There are some clients at the moment who probably are paying more than they should be. There are also other clients in there who probably aren't paying for the resource that they yeah. require. Dave, when it, when it comes to you exiting the profession... Um, did you say you're a 29% shareholder at the moment? Yeah, roughly somewhere about there. Yeah. So, so you're a 29% shareholder and let's say you, you leave, right? And you've got this ambition for that firm to be around forever, right? 
How do you guarantee that? Because it's your baby, isn't it, essentially? You've helped build that. How do you know that when you sell your shares into the business, do you retain anything, any control whatsoever? Uh, well, no, I, what, what I've said to everybody is my, uh, you know, and, and the reason why it's 29%, Sam, is I've not only got two other colleague shareholders, we have two firms of solicitors that own equity in the firm. And these were ones that started as, you know, just referral relationships. The the biggest one we've got was a referral relationship sort of 10, 10 years ago. And, and I initiated that 10 years ago. We actually then moved through there into a joint venture, et cetera, et cetera. We took out the joint venture about two years ago, partly because we were paying a shed load of irrecoverable VAT and we exchanged it for a shareholding in the main firm. So, you know, we've got quite a range of shareholders. I obviously have no say in this once I cease to be a shareholder. But what I hope I'm doing here is I'm instilling in other people the ethos of creating and sustaining the firm and with the two colleague shareholders that we brought in i believe that we have increased their investment by three to five times what i am saying to them is what i would like you to do now is realize that and what i would also like you to do is give other people the opportunity you know and Yes, I want to get a capital sum out of this firm, but the reason why I want to get a capital sum out of this firm is so that I can broadly create a very good support regime for my eldest child. You know, I, I'm i a decent quality financial advisor, Sam. You know, if I was reliant on the lump sum I get from this firm for my retirement, it would maybe a different matter, but... I I don't believe that people should put themselves in a position where they're entirely reliant on selling a business to fund their retirement, you know, and I've very clearly not done that. Um, so I am not after top dollar. I really am not. And that's partly, um, you know, because I just want to make sure this firm is sustainable. Of course, when I exit, it's down to the others what happens. And what I'm hoping is that they will realise that, they will do okay out of this financially if they stay in there as a shareholder for a number of years, if they carry on building and growing the firm and maintaining its profitability. At some point, they will want to exit. And their way to exit is by making sure that they've got succession there within the firm. Is this, the, is this an employee, employee ownership model then? Well, uh, ultimately, it might be. I can't do a, an employee share ownership trust um, because the, the legislation says you've got to be a 51% shareholder to do it. Uh, I can't because I've only now got 29%. Um, mm. But I've got a mechanism which we've discussed with our accountants and our lawyers and we're all quite happy it works and um one of the crucial things i've got to do is 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 separate out i've got to um make sure that the shares which are issued to the new shareholders are not my shares i'm going to sell my shares back so that the company can issue new shares to people coming through uh, in future because those two things might need to be done at different prices uh, except, so actually, except. you are also running, you're now sort of at the point where 
you know, you are trusting those around you that you've, that you've employed to continue on the business with the values that you've mm. set out and, and instilled within them. But really, you've employed based on those values. Why would those people's, people hang around in a firm knowing that that was your vision and goal um, to just do you over, for example? It's like it's not, it's not going to happen, is it, really? Because well, it shouldn't do. It shouldn't do because, you know, what, what, I, what I honestly believe and what, what, what the guys all tell me is they like this environment. Yeah, it sounds it's good. It's a bit of a surprise to them, but you know the the way we do things. Um, but you know what? What I uh, we are talking to three people at the moment, probably four actually, about them coming into the ownership. It's not something I'm just hanging out there and saying, you know, here's some sort of vague promise. Um, we can show we've done it. Um, and you know, I think people realise that um, it's not all about financial reward. This, you know, there's a lot to be had from job satisfaction, from dealing with a lot of the clients we're dealing with. You know, it's it's actually a really quite a pleasant uh, environment. And the way I like to sort of describe it, Sam, is it's sort of like a corporate collective. Yeah. Yes, it's a yes, it's a company, but there is no great hierarchy in our business. Um, uh, it, it's really quite a pleasant working environment. But underneath it all, it's a firm, and people collaborate. You know, and we've got three trainees coming through at the moment, and they are being mentored, if you like, by what I think is one of the best qualified. Uh, certainly, one of the best qualified. But also one of the most experienced and one of the most collaborative teams in the southwest. You've um, also got about three hundred eighty million under management, haven't you? It's a bit more than that now. It's probably something over four hundred, we think. Um, but you see, my other one of my other key things is I'm a massive believer in the segregation of financial advice and investment management. Right. You know, and I come at the background, I've got a bit of an investment manager audit background. You know, I've got a professional accountancy audit background. Um, I've got an IMC. My degree was part economics. What that basically teaches me that I know what I know, but I also have got a vague idea of what I don't know. And what I don't know is much larger than what I do know. Investment management to me is a specialist discipline. I've never been a believer in picking funds. Um, but what we're able to do is use 400 and odd million pounds worth of purchasing power to get some extremely good deals from some of the biggest and best known investment managers in the country. And I see that as part of my role. Um, but the reason why I think segregation uh, it is critically important. This come back, comes back to my point that I think distribution should be separate from manufacture because I can hold an investment manager to account against whatever criteria I set. But if that investment manager fails to deliver, and it's by no means, it's not going to be a knee-jerk reaction, this, but if that investment manager fails to deliver, over what I think is a reasonable period of time, I can lift that money and I can take it to another investment manager. 
And that, to me, is critically important in protecting clients' best interests. And again, I'm not just saying it. We've done it. We moved about, I think it was $150 million from one investment manager to another, probably oh, five years ago. Um, it, it took us about 18 months to complete the process. But in the process, we negotiated a new charging structure with the investment manager we were going to, you know, and we dropped clients' charges in the process. We didn't make any more money. I didn't load up the clients' fees for the work involved in the transition because I felt that was our responsibility. We'd put it with an investment manager that had loosely gone off the boil. My role was to go and find an alternative. And we talked to probably half a dozen at any point in time. We've just been through this. Our investment committee has just reviewed our proposition. We're very happy with what we've got. We probably, I suppose, focus on three investment managers. We are much more believers in model portfolio and passive investment that we are in full-blown bespoke discretionary, but we have to cover the full spectrum because of the client base that we've got. So, um, you know, it's it, it, another part of the satisfaction is the fact that we can deal with some of these very large investment managers on very good terms. And again, it's quite surprising to some of the people who join us what terms we can get. Obviously, I can't disclose them because they're all commercially sensitive but i had um i had a chap on who came on through sorry to kind of butt across you then but that sounded you know that was that was really interesting a good explanation actually probably one of the better ones i've heard actually um as to why you don't have it centralized i like it there's a guy who came on my podcast um from a company called the path have you heard heard of the path no so they're like they're an ethical um ethical green pensions, ethical investments, all that kind of stuff. And that's pretty much their their focus. So they're experts in ethical, ESG, and impact strategies. Is that something that you guys do where you are? Because you do like to niche into things. I mean, the care stuff is very niche. Have you niche, have you started looking to, to, to more sort of positive impact, ESG, green pensions, investments, that type of thing? Um, it, well, I'm, I'm not part of our investment committee <laughs> oh. but yes it certainly it's something that's increasingly important and again you know talking to someone who i like to think is ethically sound in various different ways it's a good thing we mm. we can proactively influence investment management um so yes it's very definitely something we're looking at i suppose one of the one of the issues is that sort of legislation hasn't quite caught up with esg investment yet but and it's a developing thing for professional fiduciaries and for layer fiduciaries but the starting point when you're investing with fiduciary or foreign fiduciaries you know trustees attorneys and deputies sam is what i'm talking about they can't allow their personal views to drive investment um that i think is changing um uh, and i think i think the the legislation will evolve on that because it's a bit of a nonsense frankly if if a lot of the world is going very much towards esg but fiduciaries are not um so that will change but yes no it's very definitely something that we look at and what i would say is that um you know we uh, there is a variation in that 
in that mm. investment proposition because we don't we to some extent we put the ESG investments down a different route. To I a, think um, if you look at the path right after this call, mm. check out the path. Have a look at what they're doing, and mm. um, they're very they're very niche, um, and they're pretty much pretty unique. Mm. I've had a look at them behind the scenes and everything because I was doing a bit of work with them and I've had them on the podcast as well. I mean, it's really, really super interesting stuff. And I think it's just one of those, you, your, your company lends itself, like your ethos and your values, it lends itself to having that specialism mm. within your business. And I think from a growth perspective and attracting individuals with the values that you actually have, which I think is like um, about positive impact in people's lives. So social mm. responsibility is a big deal for you. And I respect that. Kindness goes through you. I can tell that, you know, there's a, it's coming from a place of kindness and love and, and, and all of that. And I think if you look at the path, I think you'll just see some things on there that I think would fit beautifully into your business. And when it came mm. to attracting new advisors to your business as well, I think, and clients, Mm. You know, grandchildren of the clients that you're dealing with are mm. very focused on it. I mean, the grandparents are now very focused on it because they're thinking about their future of their grandchildren. And that, and that, yeah, absolutely, Sam. You know, and and this, I suppose, one of the interesting things there. You use the word niche. Now, I'm a huge believer in that, and and what I do say to people entering the profession is niche. You know. There are too many financial advisors out there who are purporting to be all things to all people. Um, and I don't think in any walk of professional life you can be a general practitioner at a high enough level these days. We live in a very complicated world. The analogy I draw, if you if if you want to get a divorce, you will walk into a firm of solicitors and talk to family lawyers. If you want to write a will, you will talk to the private client lawyers. If you want to sell a property, you will go and talk to the property department, commercial department, whatever it may be. Different people niche in different areas. Lawyers training involves them going through various different seats. And then basically they and the firm will pick a seat that they specialize in. Accountants are the same. You know, I said I was a general practitioner. And yes, I I, I was to a large extent. But these days, you know, you, you, you tend to specialize as well, even in certain sectors or whatever it may be. But in our, I specialize literally in what I would call various types of vulnerable clients. So, you know, the elderly, the injured, um, people with special needs, anyone under the auspices of court protection, a lot of professional fiduciaries, trustees, deputies, attorneys, and the like. You know, so that's what I stick to my knitting on that. Other people will be giving technical pension advice, and we've got Dan doing all this specialist divorce stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but niching is crucial. And what I really think is the, the the root of success in financial advice is niching. And I think it's got to be a niche that, A, you're passionate about, mm. but, B, if you've got personal experience of it, that will always shine through. And, and you know, I look back on my career and I actually think, Do you know what, that worked out really quite well. And I can see a logical progression. But 
at the time, I was probably lurching about from place to place. You know, my son was born with special needs. That certainly set me back, you know, took my life over quite a while. But eventually, and maybe it's my reaction, I concentrated on what I could change. And I thought, right, I've got to understand financial planning for someone who's got quite severe special needs. Okay, ultimately, you could argue I've created a business out of it. And yes, I have. And it's never going to be the most commercial business. Of course it's not, because I'm not that commercially motivated. But that's taken me in all sorts of different areas. And what I do find is that a lot of advisors out there now, I get contacts through LinkedIn and various other channels. How do I go about specialising in some of the areas that you've built the reputation in? Um, I think, um, yeah, and I could understand why you would, why you have found um your place Mm. and absolutely your son being born with with special needs for the rest of his life Mm. and i had another guest on my podcast who's who went through exactly the same thing um he ended up working for frankel topping over Mm. in the clinical negligence and pi side because of his experience of what he's gone through and how he was relatable then to the families that were also going through um situations where children had experienced clinical negligence and or personal injury and what I the more I learned about that side of it because I did a lot of recruitment at the time for Towery around that and Frankel Topping and I found the clinical negligence and PI side the whole pre-court post-court settlement uh, you know having to go away and actually work out a financial plan that is going to look after so if someone's been in an accident for example they've lost both their legs well how does that actually impact their 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 life expectancy how does it impact their care you know everything and you take it into all all into consideration build a financial plan to be able to give that person an income for the rest of their life, which is due to them based on the unfortunate circumstances that have occurred in their lives, whether they were born into it or whether they were or whatever. And I just, I just found that I found that whole thing fascinating. And I, that to me was like interesting financial planning. It's hugely rewarding because of the nature of what you're actually trying to achieve. So uh, as I say, you know, I've spent my time on ultra high net worth, very wealthy people. Uh, in the city uh, and I've kind of I looked at that and I thought well, w- what actually are you achieving here of any use you've made an already very wealthy person maybe a little bit wealthier you know I wouldn't claim to have made them wealthier but I guess what I've done is added to their wealth one way or another do I actually find that satisfying personally no I don't really I, I don't think I've achieved much of really any use but as you say if you can make sure that a ward of damages looks after someone for the rest of their life job done very rewarding and do you find that I the think, measure, how do you measure so that 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 coming back to you okay so you do that you do that bit of work for somebody that's got a very in a very difficult situation yeah, I love the fact that you said you're not money motivated, right? And I'm I'm very much like this. I I'm money I'm money motivated to a point, but I believe there's way more to life mm. than money. Way more to life than money. Yeah. And how do you measure what that feeling is to you? How do you measure it? And and how do you get? <laughs> do you know what I mean? What, yeah, no, I know exactly you, what you mean. Uh, and and don't get me wrong, you know, uh, I'm not money unmotivated. You know. <laughs> I've got three kids. I'm the main breadwinner in the family, you know. So, yes, I'm, you know, and I can say this from the luxury of being at the end of my career and it's all gone 
quite well. So, um, but I think if money is your main motivator, it's going to take you down a very different track. You know, it's never been my main motivator. I've always sort of thought I'll make enough to look after the family, which is my main motivation. Um, but I think, um, I don't know, I, I, I suppose, how do you manage, how do you um, sort of monitor that satisfaction? But it's just, do you feel good about what you've done? Yeah. You know, what, what I can honestly say, Sam, is over the last 30, 40 years, however long it's been, I have never knowingly missold a product. Um, I have certainly told various clients that, that there's not a lot I can add here. I'm not going to charge you just for doing nothing. Yes, I've certainly given you know quite a bit of pro bono advice to people, and I've felt good about doing that. You know, I, I suppose I've had quite a, a few cards, few little gifts from people who sort of remember it, and it's just you do. I feel good about what I'm doing. Yes, I do. Yeah. Um. And um. Uh, that does that shine through? Absolutely, because I think if you if you come at this from being money motivated or, or that being your one and only driving factor, that will clearly come across to clients. And, you know, I had a little tete-a-tete with an advisor on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago about this, and I, it, it, the comments were all taken down. Sadly. <laughs> but um, it wasn't me that took them down, by the way. I, I want to emphasize that. But it was, you know, what you just said there is a, total discredit to you know you well you can't claim to be a financial advice professional given what you've just said that's not professional um uh you know i'll always go back at people on that um and i just think you know the world has moved on i think people coming into the profession today and i do talk to quite a lot of people who who sort of get this, I'm passionate about keeping this independent financial planning profession going. Um, you know, I, I talk to quite a lot of people about that. There are some very good financial planners out or financial planners who'd like to be financial planners rather, but they just don't know how to get started. Um, and it is hugely difficult to get started in this independent financial planning profession because most of the firms that do it properly are relatively small, um, you know, and um, we are in quite a fortunate position. We have three trainees. If I was absolutely focused on the bottom line, would we have three? Probably not. But again, it's part of sustaining the firm, and I'm quite happy to invest in those three people. So we're we're a bit different maybe to some. Um but what I would really like to see is a is a route that will bring people into a financial planning profession, not into product distribution, which is the, you know, that's the difference I draw between those academies that are available at the moment. They are put together by product distributors for obvious reasons to me. They need to perpetuate their distribution channel. Well, that's great. And they've got the money to do it and the size to do it, partly, I think, 
because of the disproportionate amounts of money they've made by flogging products over the course of the last 30 odd years you know so it's put them in a good position but these are now sort of self-perpetuating distribution models so what i would really like to see is a sort of independent financial planning academy um it's an embryonic idea of mine but you know, I think there's a, quite a lot of financial planners like me at our end of the career that are quite passionate about how would you do it though, as a Dave? profession, Dave? Mm-hmm. So, so, so let's talk about that because if you, you know, when we talk about things like St James's Place, we're talking about here, for example, we're talking about M and G. I work with, with both of these. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pick on any particular name. I, I, I put yeah. this big. Product distributors in a category. Yeah. For the listeners to understand, because some of them won't really understand. So, that you know, the, this is, those are the ones we're talking about, and those are the ones that got the main academies, and you know, they can they can bring people through, they can train mm. them, they've got the money to do it, and the elements of it. It's I hear from what you're saying now, and how you very you know how you explained it was spot on. I, I get it, I get that 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 view of it. I can really get it. And the other view is that they've got it there. At least they're doing something about bringing new blood into the profession. Um, Albeit, perhaps some of these people won't ever stay within that environment. They may well have their eyes open to another area what they want to move into. So it's a great entry point. And secondly, I love the fact that you are, as an, an independent, taking on trainees. Because, again, not everybody does because of the very fact that you said that it eats into profit because they're not making you money and mm. you know in the very beginning but you've taken the view that it's like a again a, a social res- a responsibility to bring new people and new people in and i think more firms need to take that approach but well, I, let's, we let's just let's just brainstorm this what mm. can because i like the idea of this i love the idea of it i'm an entrepreneurial type individual how do we create an independent academy well, I, I think one starting point, Sam, is I think chartered status should only be awarded to firms that are training at least one financial planner. Okay. Dogmatic, maybe some firms can't afford to do that, but to me, part of the part of the definition of a professional firm is it's taking steps to sustain its future. Now we all know that you can train people and they'll leave. But it's better than nothing. I think it should be part of a chartered or a CISI equivalent. I think there should be at least one trainee in training. Um, What I would like to do is approach the chief execs of product manufacturers who do not have their own distribution channels. You know, we've mentioned a couple that manufacture and distribute down their own channels and i i am cynical about this but i do believe that the academies as such are more about maintaining that distribution channel than anything else okay the logical end result if those academies are unchecked to me is we go back to where we were in the 1980s where we have 10 or however many very large sales forces dominating the market. If that happens, other companies will not have a route to get their product to market. So what I'm saying to all those other chief execs, let's collaborate on this. Let's you fund an independent academy that will train independent 
financial planners of the future. People like me and my firm will be able to give them on-the-job training, experience, all that kind of stuff. But some firms need a bit of subsidy to do that. We've got an obvious problem with the soft commission rules and all that kind of stuff. But I just think there's got to be a way around this. Okay, so send, um, so, so firms that have, so firms that have that don't have a distribution channel being like for, for example financial advisors going out for them selling those financial yeah well Canada Eye for example yeah um, you know will St James's Place ever ever recommend a Canada Life bond no they won't because well, let's break it down James's Place bond let's just break it down so they fund it mm. fund what. Well, I, there's got to be, um, you know, there's got to be a training program. Yeah. There's got to be, well, study materials are already there, aren't they? Yeah, you yeah. know, the CII or whichever other body produces them. But there's got to be um, a way to get these trainee financial planners up, up to qualified and signed off status. It's very difficult for small independent financial advice firms to do it. Um, But what we're seeing as well at the other end of the spectrum is an awful lot of retiring financial advisors selling their firms and their client bases to these big restricted product distributors. That's because they have no one else in the firm largely to take them on. can, can I just know, stop? So what, stop? what I what I think is that if we could bring all this together in a big melting pot, the the, the thing that stops it is funding. One way or another is capital. Okay, but there's funding, right? So let's say, for example, we got the funding, right? So we had a specific amount of money, and let's start really small, right? You had enough money there to bring in an internal trainer to train up some individuals to level four qualification. Let's say through the CII, yeah. Mm. And there was also soft skills training mm-hmm. to teach them how to deliver financial planning, financial advice in the right way. Let's say that small academy allowed the individuals to continue on in their current jobs. Therefore, they didn't need to stop their jobs to take a drop in salary to do the qualifications. Mm. How do you then distribute, not to kind of commoditize an individual, but how would you let's say there was 10 people went and got qualified in that academy how then do you decide on where those individuals actually go well i think you've probably got as well to sort of have a tier or a group of firms that are willing to take these people on now most firms would jump at the idea I really think. But what you've also got to do is have some degree of quality control over there. You know, we've developed our sort of training regime. Um, we're bringing those three people on in uh, with a view to developing them all into that final sort of finished product. So you've you've got to have places for these people to go. I think... Um, How about this? Know, if, if, if financial advisors can at least hit the ground running with qualifications. That's a good thing. Well, know, that, the, that's a cost a firm doesn't have to bear. But How about this? How about this? You have the academy. It's there, right? 
So second careerists can go into that academy, stay in their current roles, go into that academy, study their level four qualifications, funded by the product providers that don't have a distribution channel, therefore giving back. Mm. I know that a lot of them want to do this, by the way. Mm. Therefore giving back. But I have an agreement in place through the academy that there are a, a number of firms across the UK. So what, I, what we would consider to be truly independent, right? Mm. Yeah, truly independent. So Southwest has a number of truly independent firms. Northeast, truly, truly, truly number. So it becomes a national, a national academy. The agreement being that the individual that comes into that academy perhaps is then interviewed by the relevant mm. IFA firm before they start on their journey of those level four qualifications. Yes, that's a good idea. And then at the, so there's an agreement signed that upon qualifications being achieved, you join that firm. Yeah. That That, makes sense. That I think, that I think would, would have legs. Yeah. So then those firms though, for being selected would also have to pay into that academy, Mm. a a, a fee, if you like, Mm. per month towards like the training and development or or to yeah. be something some commitment yeah and i think that's you know that's that's fair enough uh, you know it, it, we've got to meet in the middle on this really but you know we we funded two apprentices and and one other guy and i'll come back to him actually because it, it that's quite an interesting point but yeah i you know i'm sure there's got to be legs in this sam and and everyone's got an incentive because you know if if the only option a retiring ifa principal thinks he's got or she's got is to sell their client base out to a big consolidator what's going to happen is that the independent sector is going to be decimated basically now i know what the effect of 10 large sales forces was in the back, back in the 1980s that's where i started from when we started our chat I am desperately keen to avoid that level of market domination again. I don't think it's in anyone's interest apart from the shareholders of these big organisations. Do you feel like independent is going to potentially be a thing of the past? I think it will if it carries on like this, because I think, you know, there is so much private equity back consolidation going on. Um, You know, you, you look at the legal and accountancy professions, the the legal and accountancy professions you've got very few very large firms you've also got very few very small firms relatively speaking the vast majority of law and accountancy firms are in that sort of 10 to 30 partner tier well it's totally the other way around in financial advice i can't remember last time i looked at the figures but you know, a huge number of financial advisors, one way or another, are linked to these major, massive sales forces. The next biggest tier is one-person bands at the bottom. They're not good for consumers either, because I come back to my point, a single individual cannot be a general practitioner. What happens if a sole practitioner gets hit by a bus? Everyone's in turmoil. What we need to do is we need to encourage this middle tier. And I think this academy is part of it. What I also think is that, you know, if we can train up 
financial advisors and align them with smaller practices who've got succession issues, that will work very well as well. And what we have to be able to do is create a line of funding so that that financial advisor who's coming through is in a position to buy out the retiring principal. Now, we all know how attractive um, a financial advisor fee base can be. Um, that may change a bit, actually, if consumer duty is implemented properly, because there's no doubt that a lot of people aren't getting particularly good value for money at the moment. But I, I think this has got to be the hope or the one hope for the independent, what I'd call financial planning profession to sustain itself. Because I honestly think it's not going to be here for much longer unless people like me dig in and support it. I like um, what you're saying now, and I am going to run with it because because I'm in a position to do it, I think. Mm. I think as I, I'm, what I'm progressively creating underneath Financial Planner Life is getting me connected to some of these mm. product providers. And one thing I, I know from having conversations with them is they want to get behind something. Mm. You know, they want to put their money to, uh, to something and sponsor it, mm. and, they're, and they're willing to do so. So even on a micro scale to create the Financial Planner Life Academy, so I've got the academies, which is showcasing the entry level routes in. Mm. I'm setting up Financial Planner Life graduates, which is going to allow mm. firms who want to take on graduates to advertise for like ridiculously cheap to try and draw to drive graduates from universities mm. in. And I'm yeah, going to yeah, yeah. Unis. So I'm going to connect it to the universities. But I do believe with you, or what you're saying there, there is a space. And the space is Financial Planner Life Academy, right? Mm-hmm. And that is the truly independent academy. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, know, you can only, if you're looking to go independent, come into this academy, mm. get the funding from the pro- product providers, even if it's just a small amount. I know fantastic trainers that will sit within there and get them up to level four qualification mm. You know, what would you say? CII, CISI, what do you think is the, the, the best route? Well, I, well, one thing I do believe is there should be one route. One of the things that does frustrate me, you know, I'm a, I came from the accountancy profession. There are six chartered bodies. That does my head in. Um, we've got two main routes, I think, in financial advice. Why I, I am fundamentally opposed to the CII um, and the PFS structure, I've got nothing in common with a general insurer, not professionally, technically speaking. Financial, proper financial planning needs its own body. Um, I, I don't think the CISI is perfect because I think that's driven by the investment sector. I think what needs to happen is the PFS and the old IFP, as it was, should come together and form an independent professional body for the financial planning profession. Um, I'm, I'm a mass, I, I'm, you know, I am a member of both the CISI and the PFS. I'm chartered and I'm certified. I wish I was one or the other, frankly. Yeah. Um, Confu- um, it's confusing to those coming into the profession. It's well. hugely confusing, you know, the, and the fact that there are different routes available to get to level four. It's just more smoke and mirrors and more confusion. Why does it need to be that complicated? Let's just have one. Um, uh, as well, that the qualification. I mean, there's too much politics around, isn't there? Really, and I'm, yeah. you know, I guess I'm a fairly straightforward northerner. I just believe in seeing it how I say it, but. Um, 
you know, the, the politics of smoke and mirrors doesn't do any of us any favours. It really doesn't. We've got a real reputation for smoke and mirrors. Um, we should start cutting through some of that, I think. What's your... Um... What's your turnover like within your business? Have you, you know, how do do you keep staff in place for quite some time? Yeah, yeah. By and large, yes, we do. Um, I mean, proof will be in the pudding with the three that we're training up. Quite frankly, that's you know, where have they come the from? Where, where have they come? Well, from? it's interesting. What what's what's really interesting um, is that they come from quite different backgrounds, um, and. Um, Matt, he was training, first tier of training as a chartered accountant um, with one of the major practices. And uh, actually, it's quite interesting because uh, we offered his mum a job in the back office uh, and his mum actually said, would you mind offering that job to my son instead? (laughs) Uh, And I thought, that's a bit weird, but why? And what she explained was that he was training as a trainee chartered accountant, but he didn't feel it was right for him. He'd recognised that a lot earlier than I did, put it that way. His his uh, his uncle was a financial advisor. His brother had gone to work in his uncle's firm. There wasn't room for Matt to go and work in that firm as well, but Matt was quite keen, having understood what his brother was saying about what he was doing and i just thought yeah fine well you know we'll we'll offer the job to matt then you know i met matt we met matt we interviewed matt we said well fine you know a bit weird but well well, your mum doesn't want the job your mum your mum wants us to give the job to you so we did um lauren came from a background with another financial advisor um i'm not going to name that financial advisor but let's just say a lot of what they said and did to Lauren was really quite objectionable. Um, Lauren is going through a gender transition. And one of my major successes in this firm, I feel, is that Lauren was happy. Lauren joined us as Rob. Um, After two or three years, probably, Rob felt comfortable enough to tell me what was going on in Rob's mind. and we've been obviously very so it's a no-brainer why wouldn't we be a sensible reasonable human beings the previous advice firm had found out about this and let's just say totally out of order was their reaction to it. i'm not going to name them but you know it just should not have happened anyway um lauren had a background in financial advice it was pretty low level financial advice to be quite honest but a lovely person with a a lot of life experience obviously which is ideal for our kind of client base and then the third one and this is this is what i also try (coughs) um um sort of suggest small practitioners think about quite carefully um tom joined us because he had he knew another very good quality financial advisor in the southwest (coughs) who's been a friend of mine for probably 20 years. Tom was working as an accountant. He just about qualified as a chartered accountant and realised that actually what he was really interested in was personal financial advice. And he spoke spoke to my friend who said, oh, I know a bloke who 
who reached that conclusion after nine years as a as an accountant, go and have a word with him. And I met Tom, and Tom just impressed me straight away with his his understanding of what a financial planning career would be and why he wanted to do it. And Tom's issue was obviously his, you know, this is a big issue with second careerists. Um, How do I, how do I leave a career at this level of remuneration and retrain in another one? Well, at the time we, um, our books were all dealt with by an external bookkeeper. You know, I haven't got the time or the inclination to be dealing with all of that. So we had the bookkeeping outsourced and I was beginning to think, do you know what we need to streamline this and get better information as we're growing? And it was a little bit frustrating doing it third party. And I just started thinking, well, okay, well, we're paying that much for external bookkeeping. If I bring Tom in, um, we we had a an internal bookkeeper to some extent. I, if I bring Tom in, he can easily add a bit more to her understanding. That will enable us to take back the day to day accounting. Tom, because he's at the level he is, can can do what the bookkeepers were doing probably in about a day and a half a month tops. Um, so by taking out that external bookkeeping cost, I've freed up that cash to add what I would do be paying to an administrator. And now the end result is we've got a, a nearly qualified chartered accountant working as an administrator for us who's on the bottom. Well, he's a couple of rungs up the ladder now without having to drop his salary too much clever um you know and it's worked extremely well and i literally on linkedin this morning i i was looking at um there's a, a woman out there who is doing exactly the same thing she's taken a career break because she's been bringing up kill, uh, children but her background is is bookkeeping and accountancy so i've offered to sort of connect with her and say well actually if you can find a firm that <laughs> wants to say on its bookkeeping costs, it's quid pro quo. Uh, I know another new entrant who contacted me from, let's call it loosely, the home counties. Very, very experienced marketeer. I am 100% sure she could add a lot to a firm of financial from a marketing perspective. I've been saying that. Quid pro quo. And and I'm a huge believer in second careerists, so obviously I would Um, be because I am one. Yeah, I, I'm a firm believer in the second careerist model as well. And you're bang on about the marketers because so many firms just don't really quite have a grasp yet of marketing within the financial planning space. Mm. And you're right as well about bringing that cost on an internal basis and then just training them up alongside mm. that role. So they kind of like hybrid really for the first year or so. Exactly. And what I hope then, Sam, is it instills loyalty. You know, yeah. we, we've done you a favour. We've given you that start. And you know, this this is more satisfying to me than looking at the bottom line all the time. You know, hopefully what we're doing is we're building a very sustainable firm and we're helping people change their lives. And, you know, and the root of the, the the root, I suppose, of my philosophy. You know, I told you when I moved up to Bristol, I sort of I, I did um a couple of years in a couple of accountancy practices and then thought, right, the time is now. I'm gonna cut loose and set up my own firm. Um no, and I did set up my own firm. I 
it was a, a, a it was, I suppose, a, a bit of an accident almost. But I had a major tete-a-tete with one of the partners in one of the accountancy firms, and the end result was I just thought, I can't stay here any longer. I actually had a regulated business on the side. It was all registered with the FCA. It didn't trade. The only reason I had it as a regulated business was so I could give pro bono financial advice to parents and carers of kids with special needs. I wasn't trading it. I wasn't making any money out of it. It would just enable me to do that. Um, So it was already sitting there. Um, I had a a massive bust up with the partner. The end result was I I left. Um, And I didn't tell my wife for three months that I didn't have a job because we had a young family. You know, I was living on... I had three months' pay coming in, so the first thing I did was I, well, I left the house dressed in the same suit, same time in the morning, drove around for a bit, went for a a cup of tea in a cafe, uh, but by the end of that day, I'd found some premises. Um, uh, And then, uh, you know, a mate of mine ran um, uh, an office furniture business, so I bought some furniture off him. He was... Here's a blast from the past. He just cleared out a big office for Allied Dunbar. I bought a lot of Allied Dunbar furniture at very low prices. Anyway, yeah, cut a long story short, I'd set up the infrastructure of my firm and I began using my accountancy experience to forge links with local accountants. What I hadn't realised was that I'd come across the name David Norton, who to me is the godfather of financial planning in this country. Absolute top guy he was. I'd come across his name and I knew he operated from Bristol loosely, but I was new to the area. And really what I then did was I'd unwittingly set up three miles down the road from his practice and he found out about me because I was a new kid on the block and I was a chartered accountant, all the rest of it. Well, that guy was so massively supportive to me when I was setting up this new firm. And I used to sort of try and thank him profusely and he used to bat me away. And he said, the best way you can thank me is bear in mind the help I've given you and you go and give that help to somebody else. And so this is why I suppose I'm so passionate about all of this. I just think it, it's I'm, he passed the mantle to me and I'm passing it on to other people. And what we're all trying to do, what the root of it all is, we want to see an independent financial planning profession. And I don't use the word profession lightly. To me, profession means a proper 100% aligned training scheme. It means professional standards when it comes to ethics when it comes to fees and transparency and all that kind of stuff but above all it is completely separated from product manufacture we sit in the middle our role is planning all financial advisors will say they're planners but there is a real difference here i've always come at this from the planning angle the product is the end result and a lot of planning doesn't need a product it's the final stage in implementation but you can only be a profession in my eyes if you're completely separate from product manufacture any financial advisor who is acting as a distribution channel for a product manufacturer is in my eyes simply a salesperson 
for that principal's product range. And I know, you know, I have all these debates on LinkedIn with various people who represent those various different distribution channels. They won't change my mind and I probably won't change theirs. But and no, I, they, you know, I, think, I won't. And I think the two can live in unison, by the way. I don't think that there is... I get it. I get I get, well, I get I, where you're... But I think the two... I, what we yeah, need I, is we need this IFA Academy, this yeah, way of bringing people through into IFA business and not being dominated by the product provider. Exactly that. And the key word to me, Sam, is profession. Now... I cannot reconcile the use of the word profession with distribution channel. Okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and so, what what I'm really passionate about is what I would call the financial planning profession. And I actually think that chartered status should be reserved for people who are independent of the product manufacturer or distribution channel, because I think that again causes confusion. I have no end of contact from chartered financial planners who work within those distribution channels saying, well, I'm just like you. I'm a chartered financial planner. Well, my view is you're a very well-qualified salesperson. You're not a professional. I don't think you can be if you're directly linked to the product manufacturer and distribution. You know, and, and it's a simple black and white view, but I'm a simple black and white and all the really many ways. No, I, I, um, I, I hear what you're saying. You're saying that really the chartered status should only be for somebody that is truly independent. Independent not, and can yeah. prove it. Yeah. I get, I get that. I get that. It's not. No. No, it's not. You know, the same as a, a master's degree in psychology. Someone could work in financial planning and be a master in psychology. Exactly that. You know, but I suppose I come back to... Law and accountancy, I would describe as professions. Um, the difference is the product in law and accountancy is technical advice. The product in financial planning is technical advice, but the product, if you're part of a distribution channel, is the product, if you know what I mean. And I think... If you're part of that distribution channel, you you may give some amount of sort of planning advice, but it's limited to the amount of planning you need to do to get to the end result, which is sell that product. So, you know, I think independent financial planning is totally divorced from regulated products if you're with me it's sort of you either get this or you don't there's no, a I, get it. I, of, I get what you're i you get know, exactly there's an awful lot of financial planners out there who get it yeah um, i get your view but, you know and I, I i said to you earlier i don't call myself an ifa because i actually think that terminology frightens more people than it comforts and what's really interesting you know i suppose <laughs> How do I describe myself? Well, I describe myself probably as a chartered financial planner. Uh, and very often that stimulates a bit of conversation. You know, what, well, what is that? I've never heard of it. Um, and it, what's really interesting is that, you know, you're in some social event and you're trapped in the corner talking to someone you've never met before. And it's, hello, what's your name and what do you do? Well, I, I've got a couple of stock answers to that, you know, and I do test the water. Sometimes I'm a chartered financial planner. Sometimes I'm a chartered accountant. In in those two cases, people might think, oh, God, I'm talking to the bore in the room, et cetera. But, 
particularly when I say accountant. But um, but what it doesn't do is it doesn't instill fear. It sort of instills a bit of sort of, I'd describe it as bored respect. Okay, you're a professional person. And very often it's, oh, what, what's your firm and what field do you specialise in, et cetera, et cetera. Well, my other answer when asked that question is I can use I'm an IFA or I'm a financial advisor. The reaction to that is more often than not fear or I better bugger off and back out of this before he tries to sell me something you know and i that that is my personal experience is that and, more of a generation though that would have well, that it associated to it yeah so if, if you said you were a chartered because if i was maybe you know have you ever, have you ever tried chartered ifa for instance no <laughs> <laughs> no i haven't actually you know that, that one you know i could you could imagine if you said you were an ifa to somebody that was maybe 21 years old they might perk up their ears a little bit you say it to someone who's 60 and had a mortgage endowment plan sold to them by some dipstick yeah yeah, you know, yeah. and they've got a problem with it and they think god oh you know i've i've heard of ifas they're just crooks mm. you know so yeah. i believe you know i think they were i think the, the term ifa had has its negativity but i think it's mm. had its negativity and it's attached to a generation and that mm. generation haven't passed that down to their children for instance mm. and i think what i'm finding with the younger guys that are coming through is they're really interested in ifa Mm. but they're not seeing it out there as much and they're seeing it as being a far more difficult route to get into. Yeah, and you see, Sam, the the other thing is that, to me, the definition of a profession means that you're aligned around a common set of standards. Now, one thing about financial advice, as you know, is there are no common standards. You know, we all have to be regulated by the FCA, but how we go about our work and how we operate our service and how we document our advice and how we charge for whatever it is we're doing. There is no common standards. We're a massive spectrum. Um, And I think, you know, one good thing about the old IFP and CISI is it's got this very defined process. Now, we're a chartered firm, but we are not a CISI accredited financial planning firm and the reason is that i don't believe that process is right for every client yes i use very detailed and we use very detailed cash flow modeling in certain cases and predominantly in personal injury type cases or increasingly in divorce related cases so we use it where we think it's appropriate but one of the other things about my firm is it's never going to be fitting clients into a predefined service. We, I'm an absolute dogmatic believer in tailor the service to the client. There is no way I'm going to start doing some really whizzy cash flow modeling using Voyant or something similar if I don't think that the time involved is justified in that case. Right. You know, what, what's the point of me just whacking up a fee if it's not going to produce any value? So consumer duty has no fears for me at all, has no fears for the firm. I think we're already there. Yes, we've got to document a few things and dot a few I's and all that sort of stuff. But philosophically, we're bang on already. You know, so my big beef with the CISI is I get that process. Absolutely, I get that process. And where it's right, it's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. But it is not right for everybody. 
Um, so we will never be a CISI accredited firm unless the CISI agrees that actually you don't have to put every client through that process and detail cash flow modeling. I like um, it. Dave, I'm going to draw this conversation to an end. We've gone on a while, hasn't We've it? We've gone yeah. on a while. <laughs> I had a feeling we would, yeah. and I'm okay with that because I've really enjoyed this conversation. Do it so have I, Sam. Yeah. I've really enjoyed it, and I've learned a lot from this. And, um, you know, I get guests come on the podcast. I've had 105 guests now, and um, I've really enjoyed this Good. episode. I felt well, let's, you know, very let's educated. Let's see if we can change something here because i would love to get that academy off off the ground i would you know i will do whatever it takes to sustain an independent professional financial planning sector yeah. you know and you can count on my support well you've proved me right as well because well i i i knew you were the type as i said you the first i come across you is on social media and you were very opinionated and, <laughs> and but the thing is though dave is that people people shy away from being opinionated on social media for fear of reprisal of what they look like mm-hmm. and i found your approach it was challenging and i liked it and i thought to myself well this guy's not an idiot at all and he's not missing and he's not Have missing change that view at all over the yeah. course of the last hour and a half wherever and he's not speak. he's not misinformed mm. and then when i spoke to you on the telephone that day i thought yeah you know there's something running through this guy these intrinsic core values that that are coming from a really good place mm. and you've just backed it up and the whole conversation that we've had today has been it's been great and yeah your values are clearly there mm. and i can see them and I would feel so comfortable in referring somebody to you. I would feel so com- In fact, my mother-in-law has just come into inheriting quite a large sum of money, but she has disabilities. Okay. Yeah. They've just bought a house, but they've gone through some serious stress around it. And she herself is on benefits and all of this. And she's worried about losing her benefits because they've inherited some money. They want to buy a house and they've got a little bit of money left over, what to do with it. And I'm going to... She's no, no, that's meat and drink to us, Sam. And you know, yeah. this is, you know, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about people with disabilities is you've just outlined to me a situation that happens very often. Somebody's come into an inheritance in the wrong way, and it potentially is going to compromise eligibility for benefits and all yes. that sort of stuff. You know, and it's. You know, I mean, that. well, uh, one of the other big things that we could do on that score is I've, I've just introduced benefits advice as well. You know, Brilliant. that's important to a lot of our clients. And I just want to bang the drum on that for a minute, if I can, because yeah. we haven't done it by recruiting a benefits advisor because I didn't want to pull one out of a charity. Invariably, if I want to recruit one, I'm going to pull them out of a charity where they're doing good works. So we've reached a commercial agreement with, Exeter Citizens Advice and their trading business so that we can access benefits advice very quickly and very directly for our clients. But we don't make any money out of that. We we have bought some software, we've tailored it, we want to cover our costs. But if uh, we don't make profit out of benefits advice, we, we give that back to the CAB as a charitable donation. You know, that's kind of just part of our ethos. Um, so no, we'd what? be more than happy. And, you know, as I say, the... We give anybody a bit of time free of charge, Sam, so I'm, I'm more than happy to... Brilliant. Well, I'm going to arrange that. I think she should definitely speak to you. 
Um, and actually, with the benefits side of things, right, that's you're, you're spot on there. It's so tricky to find clear, mm. honest advice where someone's not trying to make a quick buck again mm. off the back of somebody's misery mm. or fear or worry. And that's yeah. the thing. Like, she made herself so sick through worry. She's got lots of problems anyway. She's sick anyway. Mm. And and she's had this windfall, essentially, sadly, from the mother and her mother-in-law dying. Okay. But they had to, they, she also, while she was on benefits, unwell and everything, and her partner was working, they were having to pay the fees for the mother-in-law to remain in the, um, in the nursing home. The nursing home were charging extortionate fees and were putting loads of pressure on them to pay them all the time, even though they were both on benefits. Mm. And there was... There was just no advice. There was nothing around. There was nothing. No, well, this, you know, this is again partly why I've set up this firm because th- these areas are an absolute minefield. And I've been through it four times with parents. I've been through it with my son for the last 13 years nearly. Um, I know so many other parents of people with special needs, all that kind of stuff. The point is, Sam, there but for the grace of God, go all of us, any of us, could have an immediate social care need this time tomorrow. It it just, that's the way it can be. And social care in this country, we could have another two-hour conversation about that. It's just such a mess, and it absolutely frustrates the hell out of me. Um, But, yeah, you know, more more than happy to have a chat with your mother-in-law. Brilliant. Listen. Dave, right. again, I really value your time today. Really value your opinion and your views and your experience. And um, I'm sure the listeners will also enjoy hearing this conversation. And if anybody's listening... <laughs> well, we'll want, find out, won't we? Yeah, we'll if anyone's out. listening and wants to connect with Dave, just reach out on LinkedIn. He's always on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> well, sadly, you see, as you get towards the end... One of the things I, I think you you... You hit the nail on the head. You know, I can still, even though I'm as old and doddery as I am, I can still remember my first experiences of financial advisor. I used to walk into rooms in those days. I was the youngest person in the room. You know, the the the, the financial advice sector was frankly dominated by middle-aged, overweight white men. Not many of them had much hair. Well, I've actually come around full circle now, as you can probably tell, you know. And so there is an element of sort of, oh, you know, what a mess this all is. You know, you do turn into a bit of a grumpy old man. But what I hope is I'm a constructively grumpy old man. And, you know, this is honestly what I feel. And I feel it, I think, for all the right motives. And if I can make a bit of a difference. I think what you've suggested is a good idea. I think what you suggested is a good idea. And I want to, I want to run with it on a micro scale and see if I can get something off the ground. Well, I can can give you half a dozen names of people who'd be very keen to, you know, look for a route into an independent academy. I could probably give you a good few names of you know, experienced chartered financial planners like me would be more than happy to support it. I've got some I've got some ideas. One being the firms that are actually involved in it have to then come in and actually deliver training to those individuals. Well, what one of the other things, just very quickly, Sam, I'm I've just crossed my mind. Um, I don't know whether you've ever come across RQ ratings, but no. 
It's a new initiative. Have a look at it. I'll send you a copy of our RQ ratings. But basically, RQ is a new initiative which is designed to do independent due diligence on financial advice firms for predominantly the legal and accountancy professions. You know, the legal and accountancy professions, when they make referrals to financial advisors, their professional rules require them to understand the firm that they're referring to. Well, RQ, I, I understand at the moment, it's about 35 firms in the country that have been rated. Um, we're one of them, and we've got a very good rating from it. But what I do think is that actually RQ ratings firms would probably be quite keen to back this up. You know, I do know some very good firms across the country. The professional financial planning world is is a good club to be part of. Well, maybe um, then, maybe then we bring together a few people, right, over a roundtable discussion. Yeah, yeah. And we set it off and see what we can do. Dave, yeah. let's do that. Right. I'm going to end right. this now because I could talk to you forever. <laughs> And I've got to go home. Well, likewise, you know, I can I can bang on for this about this for as long as you like, to be honest. But anyway, yeah, no, it's good talking to you, Sam, and you know, we'll we'll pick it up again, definitely. Hundred percent. Thank you. So valuable. Thank you for your time. Okay. Cheers, Sam. Bye bye.